Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Come Follow Me, A Disciple's Journey. In today's episode, we'll be discussing Jacob chapters 1 through 4. Uh, before we jump into those chapters, just wanted to say thank you to all those who uh, have listened and are listening. It means a lot to me, and it means a lot to, uh, it gets me really excited as I um, see more people joining the, the Facebook group and engaging and interacting a little bit. I'm not the greatest uh, at posting content there. I'm getting better, I feel. I want to create a, a kind of a community where we can, no matter where we live, discuss the gospel together and discuss the scriptures as we study um, Come Follow Me and, and the scriptures together. So if you haven't already, uh, please join uh, Come Follow Me, A Disciple's Journey Facebook group. Um, there used to be a page. I actually got rid of that because it's, I was going to do a page first. It's just a group now is what you're going to be looking for. But uh, again, thanks for everyone who's listening. It makes it uh, a lot more fulfilling for me to see that people are listening. I would still do this no matter what if it was just, uh, I've shared this before, that if it was just me and it was just for me to um, further my own studies and dive into the scriptures more, I would still be doing this because it pushes me a little bit uh, more than I than uh, I've been pushed in the past, and so uh, I would do it anyway. But it does it makes it a little easier to come into my office every Saturday and and record an episode for an hour, an hour and a half, uh, with my preparation time and everything, uh, knowing that that there's at least a couple people out there listening. So I appreciate it and thank you. So as we jump, as we move into Jacob. Uh, Sad that we're done with, with Nephi, and um, as Jacob's going to tell us in chapter 1, Nephi's life comes to a, a close, um, and he before he does that, though, he passes on the record to his brother Jacob, and he consecrates his brothers Jacob and Joseph, his two youngest brothers, uh, as priests and teachers, and we'll get into that here in a second. Before, I just, yeah, I mean, I want to just make sure that we talk about Jacob for a moment, and who he is, and uh, his his writings aren't very long here. There's only seven chapters. Chapter five is quite long, um, but it's actually not even really Jacob. He's quoting Zenus for basically the entire chapter of chapter five. So if you take that out, you have really six chapters here of Jacob. Um, we had a, a Jacob chapters, a couple of Jacob chapter chapters in Second Nephi, uh, six. Uh, and 9 and 10. Uh, he also wrote chapters 7 and 8, but really he was just quoting Isaiah in those chapters. So we there's not a lot, really, that we have up from Jacob as compared to Nephi. Um, but as we look and we see that uh, we have Jacob, and then we have Enos, Jerem, and Omni. And then at the end of Omni, we know that the small plates are full. And Enos, Jerem, and Omni are all one-chapter books. And so... By the time Nephi hands these small plates off to Jacob, they're, they're pretty full. There's not a lot of room left. And so you really start to think about it that way. And we, when you start to think about it that way, I mean, you, you get this sense of what was, what was Jacob trying, writing and why was it important for him? And why did he feel it was important for him to write what he wrote? Um, because every time, at every moment that he's writing those small plates are shrinking and shrinking. And in uh, chapter 1 of Jacob, he tells us what Nephi, had, the instruction Nephi had given him and, and what things to write. 
He says, and if there were preaching which was sacred or revelation which was great or prophesying that I should engrave in the heads of them upon these plates and touch upon them as much as it were possible for Christ's sake and for the sake of our people. If you look at the footnote for uh, heads where he says engrave in the heads, it says the dominant and important items. And so the, the, the preaching was sacred or revelation which was great or prophesying. And so here he, he is, and he's got a little bit of room, and what, what, what things does he think are great and important for Christ's sake and for his people's sake, like he said. So Jacob uh, was the firstborn of Lehi and Sariah in the wilderness. So after they'd already left Jerusalem, they have another son in the wilderness, and, and Jacob is that first son. They have another son later named Joseph. Um, but here's Jacob who grows up, in the wilderness, crossing the sea, and uh, never actually lived in uh, in Jerusalem, but uh, was was with them through all through all these travelings, and uh, I think it's interesting to think about it that way, knowing that what he he went through in his life and seeing his brothers Laman and Lemuel rebel, and seeing his older brother Nephi be so stalwart and strong and true to the gospel and true to the Lord. And uh, I found a quote from Elder Holland where he talks about Jacob and just kind of this perspective and his purpose in writing and what he had seen in his life that kind of gives us a little bit more, uh, a different angle, I guess, on and a different lens to look through as we read through Jacob's words. Uh, Elder Holland said, Jacob seems to have been particularly committed to presenting the doctrine of Christ. Given the amount of space he gave to his witness of the Savior's atonement, Jacob clearly considered this basic doctrine the most sacred of teachings and the greatest of revelations. We, said Jacob, had many revelations and the spirit of much prophecy. Wherefore, we knew of Christ and his kingdom which should come. Wherefore, we labored diligently among our people that we might persuade them to come unto Christ. Wherefore, we would to God that all men would believe in Christ and view his death and and suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. Uh, no prophet in the Book of Mormon, by temperament or personal t- testimony, seems to have gone about that work of persuasion with more faith, more faithfully than did Jacob. He scorned the praise of the world. He taught straight, solid, even painful doctrine, and he knew the Lord personally. His classic Book of Mormon example of a young man's decision to suffer the cross and bear the shame of the world in defense of the name of Christ. Life, including those difficult early years when he saw the wickedness of Laman and Lemuel, bring his father and mother down to their graves in grief was never easy for this firstborn in the wilderness. And that's something that I, that I, that I really liked is that this life was never easy for Jacob, really. He was born in the wilderness, traveling with no real comforts, crosses the ocean, gets to a place where they have to build a home. There's great things on the promised land, but there's not a civilization. They have to establish this. He sees his brothers rebel. He sees his parents die in sadness and grief because of the rebellions of his brothers. He sees his brothers then t- turn on Nephi and try to want to kill him, and so they have to separate. And so now you have this tearing apart of this family, and that's the life that Jacob led. And what he clung to is is the atonement of Christ. And as we'll talk about um, as we go through today's chapters, uh, this comes from preach my or not preach my gospel. <laughs> uh, excuse me, uh, come follow me. This week it says Jacob testified that healing for both groups, the sinner and the spiritually wounded comes from the Savior, Jesus Christ. And, you know, the first few chapters here are Nephi, or excuse me, Jacob, correcting 
his, these people who had, were suffering from uh, ailments of pride and love of money and sexual sin. Uh, but then he also says to them that, Oh, all you that are pure in heart, lift up your heads and receive the pleasing word of God and feast upon his love, for ye may, if your minds are firm, forever. And so there he testifies that not only can you repent, you sinners who have this, this, these, these problems that he's testifying about and, and, re, and reproving them about, the atonement is for you, but it's also for those who are pure in mind and whose hearts have been broken because of your actions. And that's a, that's a pretty powerful doctrine that the atonement of Jesus Christ is for all of us, no matter our circumstances in life. At times we are the sinner who needs to be saved. And obviously that is throughout all of our life, but at times it's us that are, we are the uh, transgressor and uh, and other times we are the one who's been who who has been transgressed against, who is a victim of someone else's actions. And what Jacob testifies and teaches us is that in both situations, in both circumstances, and in all circumstances, uh, that's the Savior and the, His atoning sacrifice that has the power to heal us, and to lift us, and to purify us. So with that said, moving in now into Jacob's chapters here, I wanted to touch briefly there on about an kind of an overall view of, of these chapters and who Jacob is. And as we move on, um, we get to uh, why he wrote. We, and I kind of already mentioned that, but he wrote, I think we have to kind of look in a couple of different places. If we look in chapter one, but also if we flip to chapter four and I'll touch on this in a minute as, more as we get into chapter 4 more deeply, but you combine a, a few different things that he says, and what you get is that he wrote because he loved his people. Uh, Jacob, more than anyone in, this, in the Book of Mormon that I can think of, expresses this anxiety and, des- and great desire for the welfare of his people. Um, and... In chapter 4, he talks about how difficult it is to write on the plates. But he says that he rejoices in, in, and labors diligently in doing that in hopes that it, his people would accept them with thankful hearts and know that he knew Christ and that they would then, in turn, know Christ. And so uh, from chapter 1 and a few different places, you get this. that you know, Nephi gives him this instruction, write only sacred things. And he takes that really to heart, and so he does it joyfully in hopes that it will, uh, you know, reach one person. And I can really, I mean, from a, as a, from a personal perspective here, I can really relate to that as I do this podcast. This is not an easy thing for me. I've mentioned that in the past that I am by nature more, uh, a more reserved person. I'm not super well-spoken, I feel. feel awkward in the way that I speak, much like... Moroni writes in ether and in the awkwardness of his hands and the awkwardness of his writing. That's how I feel about my speaking. And my hope is that I can reach some one person. And so I, I come and I do this joyfully and, and with, uh, in hopes that it can change, like I said, my life. Or hopefully in my prayer, every time I, I start this podcast before, I turn the mic on, I, I offer a prayer that I might, I might reach just one, one person. And I think that's something that Jacob was 
was would would also relate to. And uh, as we move forward, uh, he man, he talks a lot about anxiety and just his um, unrest kind of for his people and his great desire for them to follow the Savior. And but he does say that something here that. that uh, I think it's kind of cool in that what anxiety can lead to. And he says, For because of faith and great anxiety, it truly had been made manifest unto us concerning our people what things should happen unto them. And I think in this case, it's this, uh, when he talks about, he says, having faith and great anxiety. I think what he's saying is, if, you have, if we have faith and a great desire, and if there's an anxiety really inside of us driving us to know something and to learn something from the Lord, and as we take that, desire and our faith, the Lord will reveal truths to us. And I, I kind of have this thing written in my scriptures actually that prayer, no, the desire plus faith plus prayer equals revelation. Uh, and um, as, so moving on, chapter, verse 7, he's, he's talking to his people and he says, look, I'm, I'm laboring diligently that I can uh, persuade them to come unto Christ and partake of his goodness. Why? Well, because I don't want them to, them to end up like um, the children of Israel in the days of the provocation, in the, in the provocation in the days of the temptation while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. And so what he makes reference there to is the 40 years the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness before they could enter into the promised land. Uh, because they were wicked, because they provoked the Lord, essentially. They, they did not listen to his teachings. They continually turned their back on him and turned to uh, idol worship and, and other things like that. And so he did not allow them to enter into the wilderness. And I thought this made me actually... So this, I mean, obviously that's from the Exodus story in, in Exodus and also in Numbers we get some of that as well. But what I thought of actually is... A, a chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. So the assumed author of Hebrews is Paul, so I'll, I'll uh, go with that, and I'll say Paul here is writing to the Hebrews. And so what that means is he's writing to people of Jewish descent, ch- the children of Israel, the house of Israel. That's who he's writing to here. So they have a specific uh, historical knowledge and, and lineage and, and things like that. And so as he's writing to them, uh, he writes it in that same type of way where he's going to do the same thing that Jacob just did. Where, I mean, here's Jacob and his people. They're, they're you know, half generation, maybe one generation removed from being in Jerusalem. They are the house of Israel. Nephi made that very clear as he was uh, telling us about Isaiah and reading us the Isaiah, or t- writing us the Isaiah chapters. And so they have this specific heritage. And so I think that... Uh, one, Actually, Hebrews is actually a pretty cool um, book to read along with um, the Book of Mormon, and, and especially in certain parts like this, because, because of that shared heritage. And so Paul in Hebrews says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of the temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw works for forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said they do always, they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. 
But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And so Paul is basically saying the same thing to these Hebrews, right? He's saying, don't be like the children of Israel who had to wander for 40 years because they didn't listen. They didn't follow the Lord. And that's what Jacob says. That's why he does all his preaching. That's why he writes down what he preached to his people about pride and about uh, the love of money and about uh, sexual immorality. And one of the verses that Paul wrote here in Hebrews really stands out to me. It says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you harden your, uh, be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And I, that, I think that verse Jacob would adore because I think that would speak to his anxiety of why he was so anxious is that he wanted to, people to act today. Uh, while it, exhort one another daily while it's called today. Don't wait till tomorrow. I think of in Alma chapter 34, that this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Behold, the day of this life is, is the day for men to perform their labors. Uh, and, and a quote just came to me as I was also reading these, these verses um, from President Eyring. He said, there is danger in the word today when what it really means is not this day. And you know, that's, what, that's, that's, that's Jacob's anxiety comes from, is it acts today. Choose, ah, man, another scripture, uh, Joshua, choose ye this day whom you will serve. Don't wait until tomorrow. And, you know, put off your pride. Don't love, love God more than you love money. Love your wives and your children and be true and faithful to them and put off sexual sin. And today, that's what Jacob is, is trying to teach and implore his, his people. Uh, verse 8 uh, there's actually a few of these verses, and I, I, I'll try to point out a couple of them, but if not, I wanted to point out this one at least. that, Man, if you can't tell that the, the same person who wrote uh, you know, 2 Nephi 9 and 10 is, is the same person who wrote these chapters, uh, and because there's, there's this distinct writing style that Jacob has, and he, he talks about his anxiety um, and he talk, in multiple places, and he, one of the things that he has also says uh, is has this theme in multiple places. So 2 Nephi 9, uh, verse... I'll, I'll read 2 Nephi 9, 18 first, and then I'll read verse 8 from Jacob 1. But behold, the righteousness of the saints of the Holy One of Israel, they who have believed in the Holy One of Israel, they who have endured the crosses of the world and despised the shame of it, they shall inherit the kingdom of God, which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world, and their joy shall be full forever. Now, verse 8 from Jacob chapter 1. Wherefore, we would to God that we could persuade all men not to rebel against him, to, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ and view his death and suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. Wherefore, I, Jacob, take it upon me to fulfill the commandment of my brother Nephi. Yeah, this cro- the cro- bearing of the cross of the world, despising the shame of it. The theme, he actually mentions that again later. And uh, a, 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 a similar type of uh, wording. And yeah, just pretty cool that Here's this. It's clear that it's the same the same person writing. So verses nine through fourteen. Nephi dies. They loved Nephi. He was their ruler, and so they start naming their kings. Uh, second Nephi, third Nephi. What's important to note is that does not have any relation to our books that we have. Uh, first Nephi, second Nephi, third Nephi, fourth Nephi. Uh, they're just for a while here. They they start naming their kings Nephi to remember him. Uh, verse 18, they, 
Jacob mentions that him and his brother Joseph were consecrated priests uh, and priests and teachers to the people by the hand of Nephi. Something just uh, to, to point out there, this is not, he's not referring to an office of the priesthood of teachers and priests. The uh, Nephites were not from the uh, tribe of Levi, meaning they were they were not uh, did they not have they did not have the Levitical priesthood, which is the Aaronic priesthood. They were from the house uh, and tribe of Manasseh, and so they that means the priesthood that they had would have been the Melchizedek priesthood, and so they would not. And when he talks about the teachers and priests, uh, he's not talking about being ordained to an office. Uh, President Joseph Fielding Smith touched on this. He said, The Nephites officiated by virtue of the Melchizedek priesthood from the days of Lehi to the days of the appearance of our Savior among them. It is true that Nephi consecrated Jacob and Joseph, that they should be priests and teachers over the land of the Nephites, but the fact that the plural terms priests and teachers were used indicates that this was not a reference to the definite office in the priesthood in either case, but it was a general assignment to teach, direct, and admonish the people. And I would add, to minister to them. So, just something to, to point out there. And then as we get to the end of chapter 1, we're going to get this transition to... Uh, it almost seems like Jacob... So he goes and he, he gives his sermon, and then he writes his sermon, obviously, uh, in the plates. But he, he kind of, in the end of chapter 1, leads us into why he's doing that. And he talks about magnifying his calling, and uh, that he... Otherwise, uh, so that he could, uh, wherefore, by laboring with our might, their, might, their blood, the people's, might not come upon our garments. Otherwise, their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. So he talks about that because he had been consecrated a teacher and a priest, his duty, his job was to teach them the error of their ways. Otherwise, their sins would be upon his head. And he talks, and, um, talks about magnifying his calling. And President Monson said, how does one magnify a calling? Simply by performing the services that pertain to it. An elder magnifies the ordained calling of an elder by learning what his duties as an elder are, and then by doing them. As with an elder, so with a deacon, a teacher, a priest, a bishop, and each who holds office in the priesthood. So recently I received a new calling, uh, I don't know, three or four months ago. And uh, the uh, person who is in charge of my group that I am serving in, as soon as I received the call and accepted, the first thing he did was invited me to read uh, portions of Handbook 2, um, which teach the duties of my calling. And the duties of pretty much every calling are in that book. And you know, I love that President Monson said, all, all you have to do to magnify your calling is do the duties that are assigned to you. Perform those labors. Don't go beyond those labors. Don't be, go beyond those bounds. You don't have to try to do someone else's job. Just do your duty. Uh, as President Uchtdorf, I'm pretty sure he was then president, but now elder again, Uchtdorf said, lift where you stand. And that's, that's how you magnify your calling. Um, at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Jacob mentions this great anxiety. Uh, and so in verse 3 of chapter 2 he says, uh, and ye, ye yourselves know that I have hitherto been diligent in this, in the office of my calling, but I 
this day I'm weighed down with much more desire and anxiety for the welfare of your souls than I have hitherto been. So I mentioned that he talks about that in other places. And so if, I, if you flip back to 2 Nephi chapter 6, verse 3, he says, this is Jacob, Nevertheless, I speak unto you again, for I am desirous for the welfare of your souls. Yea, my anxiety is great for you. He's got this just inner burning desire and passion and love for his people. And I mean, I think it's, I think, he, again, the thing that's cool to me is, I don't think he was really different than Nephi, but what you get is a different personality, a different writing style. I'm, I mean, you know, at the end of 2 Nephi 33, Nephi's wrapping up. We talked about this last week. Nephi talks about, for I pray continually for them by day, and mine eyes water my pillow by night because of them, his people. And I cry unto my God in faith, and I know that he will hear my cry. I have charity for my people, and great faith in Christ that I shall meet many souls spotless at judgment at his judgment seat. I have charity for the Jew. I have charity for the Gentile. So Nephi expresses it through those types of words. Jacob's expression comes through, through as this anxiety for the welfare of their souls. And... Uh, Again, talking about the importance of a leader, and we'll even get into how this connects to even being a parent as well, the importance to, to teach those whom we have stewardship over right from wrong, and if, they're, if they are committing sin, it's our duty to try to correct them and invite them to repent. President John Taylor said on, a, on one occasion, um, if you do not magnify your callings, God will hold you responsible for those you might have saved and had you done your duty. This is a challenging statement, but if, if, by, if I, by reason of sins of commission or omission, lose what I might have had in the hereafter, I myself must suffer, and doubtless my loved ones with me. But if I fail in my assignment as a bishop or stake president, a mission president, or one of the general authorities of the church, if any of us fail to teach, lead, direct, and help to save those under our direction and within our jurisdiction, then the Lord will hold us responsible if they are lost as a result of our failure." And that is a heart that he says. This is a challenging statement. But one thing that I cling to is, you know, as, te- as Jacob testifies of the power and importance of the atonement, is that if we make that effort, if we're in a place of, of responsibility as a parent or another calling or another leader, um, whether it be in the primary or relief society or anywhere it may be, if we magnify our callings, as President Monson said, by just doing our duty, the Lord makes up the rest, and the atonement of Jesus Christ uh, perfects our effort. And so that's all we need to really worry about. And it's, it's controlling what we can control and doing what we can do. So Jacob takes this responsibility very seriously. And it's almost like to me that he uh, recognizes that what he's about to do and the way that he's about to write and the sermon that he give, gave his people about sexual immorality and the love of money and pride. It's almost like he feels like it's significantly different than anything else in the small plates thus far, that he like almost needs to justify it. Not, not, I mean, I don't know, because he just... And the, why, why I say that is he spends almost 10 verses talking about how painful this is for him to do, that he has to, but he has to do it. He has to correct them. He doesn't want to do it. He wishes he didn't have to do it. Um, and Elder Holland uh, taught something about this, if I can find my notes. There they are. Uh, he said, Jacob spends much of ten full verses apologizing, in effect, for the sins he must address and in, in the language he has to use in addressing them. 
He notes that he does this with soberness, being weighed down with much more, in, more desire and anxiety for the welfare of his uh, hearers' souls. Knowing him as we do, we would be surprised if he said otherwise. Listen to the mournful tone of the passages, literally the grief of them, as he single-mindedly pursues what he has always been single-mindedly about, steadfast loyalty to God and his commandments. So here's something, one of the verses that Jacob wrote. Yea, it grieveth my soul and causeth me to shrink with shame before the presence of my maker that I must testify unto you concerning the wickedness of your hearts. Wherefore, it burdeneth my soul because of the strict commandment which I have received from God to admonish you. Um, we are not even into the discourse per se before we sense that quite literally this bold and unyielding manner of preaching is almost hard on, as hard on Jacob as it is on the guilty ones in his audience. But perhaps that's the way it should always be, and why Christ in his preaching was oftentimes a man of sorrows. The commandments have to be kept, sin has to be rebuked, but even such bold positions must be taken compassionately. Even the sternest of prophets must preach from the depths of a sensitive soul. I love that. You know, we can rebuke and we reprove in be times, as section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants tells us. But if we're doing it with love, it's not going to be easy because we know the gravity of sin. We know how difficult it is going to be for the, the sinner to hear it. We know how difficult the road... If we, if we ourselves have traveled the, the path of repentance, uh, then we know how difficult it, it's going to be for them to travel that path as well. But we also must do it knowing that it's the only way to Christ and to joy Sometimes blunt and challenging words are necessary when a leader or a parent cries repentance to those whom they have stewardship over. Uh, and in that same vein, Elder Oaks shared a similar thought. Uh, he said, uh, this comes from a fireside in 2005, so 15 or so years ago. He said, last week I was talking with a member of the Quorum of the Twelve about comments we had received on our April conference talks. My friend said something uh, someone told him, I surely enjoyed your talk. We agree that this is not the kind of comment we like to receive. As my friend said, I didn't give the talk to be enjoyed. What does he think I am, some sort of uh, entertainer? Another member of the quorum joined the conversation by saying, that reminds me of a story of a good minister. When a parishioner, parishioner said, I surely enjoyed your sermon today, the minister replied, in that case, you didn't understand it. You may remember, this is about now, Elder Oaks again, you may remember that this April conference I spoke on pornography no one told me they enjoyed that talk. Not one. In fact, there was nothing enjoyable in it, even for me. I speak of these recent con conversations to teach the principles that a message given by a general authority at a general conference, a message prepared under the influence of the Spirit to further the work of the Lord, is not given to be enjoyed. It is, it is given to inspire, to edify, to challenge, to correct. It is given to be heard under the influence of the Spirit of the Lord with the intended result that the listener learns from the talk and the, from the Spirit what he or she should do about it. And I love that. And it made me think of President Mont or Nelson's invitation for us to prepare in a unique and special way for this upcoming conference. My personal thought is that we're not going to be, they're not going to dispense any more knowledge than they always do. The Spirit will dispense the same amount of knowledge. But what is our job, it's our job to bring a bigger a bigger bowl to catch that knowledge. If we bring a little, a little sacrament-sized cup, it's going to get filled up. 
If we bring a, a mug, it's going to get filled up. If we bring a 55-gallon uh, barrel, it'll get filled up. And uh, our preparation in, in coming to the to general conference and to the to the feet of the general authorities to learn from them and from the Spirit and from the Lord, our job is to prepare and, and bring uh, a bigger bucket to catch that that knowledge. And so, jumping back into Jacob here, he spends these verses telling it, us and telling his, his, his listeners that he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to have to have this conversation. He wishes he could talk to them about happy things, and, but he has to do this. And what he begins by teaching them is about pride. And he says, uh, And the hand of providence has smiled upon you most pleasingly, that you have obtained many riches. And because some of you have obtained... Uh, more abundantly than that of your brethren, you are lifted up in the pride of your hearts and wear stiff necks and high heads because of the costliness of your apparel and persecute your brethren because ye suppose that ye are better than they. And this language made me think of the language that Nephi taught in First Nephi 13 and 14 about the great and abominable church, the whore of all the earth. I also think of the words of John the Revelator in Acts 17, which is kind of a companion to First Nephi 13 and 14, but it says the woman great abominable church really, was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand and full of abominations and filthiness. And in First Nephi uh, 13, he says, And I also saw gold and silver and the silks and scarlets and fine twine linen and all manner of precious clothing. And the angel spake unto me, Behold the gold and the silver and the, the silks and the scarlets and the fine twine linen and the precious clothing and the harlots are the desires of this great and abominable church. And you think about, he's talking, he talks, I mean, about the, the pride and the wealth and this desire to be rich and have nice, fancy things. That's what the, the desires and, uh, of the great and abominable church is. And you have Jacob saying, hey, that's what I'm seeing in my people right now. Whoa, my brother wrote about this. He was writing about future events, and I'm seeing this in my people Hence, he starts getting this great anxiety of, well, I've, I've got to correct them now. And it also this, you know, the great and abominable church, its, its desires were of the harlots and, and sexual immorality, which then you kind of get this sense that pride and love of wealth and money leads into sexual immorality, which is exactly what Jacob, where Jacob's sermon ends up going. But before we get there, uh, sticking with chapter 2, he teaches us the antidote for pride. He says, think of your brethren like unto yourselves. Love your love others, he says, and be familiar with all and free with all your substance that you may be rich like un, that they may be rich like unto you. What are the two great commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. And it's it just is crazy and it's in, to me that there he the, the simple antidote to pride is, is charity. It's loving other people. It's loving God first. Uh, and he, he even, Jacob expresses this as he continues, that money and having money is not bad. He says, look, but before you seek for riches, seek ye the, for the kingdom of God. And after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them. And ye will seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to liberate the captive, and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. And so he says, you know, look, having money and having all this wealth, that's not bad. What, what is bad is putting it first, making that be your first love. Love God 
love your neighbor, love your fellow men. And uh, paraphrasing kind of C.S. Lewis here and uh, kind of intermixing it with my thoughts, but about how we love other, other people. You know, when you think about the way that you, God, or how, or Christ taught us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, right? And so, well, how do you love yourself? Do you, have, do you have a particular, like, affection for yourself? No, not really, but how do you love yourself? Well, you take care of yourself. You feed yourself. You clothe yourself. You give yourself the benefit of the doubt. When you make a mistake, you probably, like me, tend to blame other things other than yourself, and outside reasons and say, oh, well, next time I can do better. When someone else makes a mistake, is that the, the kind of attitude we have? Or is it, man, that person has no respect. He's always late for meetings. When you're late for a meeting, you're, you, you say, oh, I had such a rough night and my kids were up late and my alarm went off late and then my, um, my breakfast got burnt and I was running late, running out the door and I spilled my drink on my shirt and had to go change. And so that's why I'm late. But when someone else is late, it's, ah, oh, that person has no respect. But it, if we can give, if we, to love our neighbor and love our fellow men, what do we do? How, does, how do we do that? We love them like we love ourselves. Feed them, clothe them, care for their needs, give them the benefit of the doubt, apply the atonement to them, uh, and assume that the, that the Savior loves them the same way that he loves us. And... Uh, on that same vein, I mentioned this actually, I think, last week, but Mosiah, King Benjamin, teaches us, uh, Nephi taught us how to obtain the remission of our sins and being baptized, and the, then cometh the fire, then cometh uh, the, the baptism of the fire and the Holy Ghost and a remission of your sins. It's how we obtain a remission. How do we retain that? Well, uh, King Benjamin, Mosiah chapter 4, said, And now for the sake of these things which I have spoken unto you, that is, for the sake of retaining a remission of your sins from day to day, that you may walk guiltless before God, I would that you should impart of your substance to the poor, every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. We retain a remission of our sins by having charity and loving other people and taking care of them and their needs. And on that note, uh, Elder Worland talked about our fast offerings. He said, how much should we pay in fast offerings? My brothers and sisters, the measures of our, fa- of our offerings to bless the poor is a measure of our gratitude to our, to, to our Heavenly Father. He then quoted Marion G. Romney, who was actually the bishop of Elder Worthland's ward when he was called to go on a mission. Uh, Elder Romney said, Be liberal in your giving, that you, you, that you yourselves may grow. Don't give just for the benefit of the poor, but give for your own welfare. Give enough so that you can give yourself into the kingdom of God through consecrating your means and your time. Uh, give so that you can give yourself into the kingdom. Uh, I want to go back to seeking riches. Seek, before you seek riches, seek the kingdom of God. Uh, President Packer said, We want our children and their children to know that the choice of life is not between fame and obscurity, nor is the choice between wealth and poverty. The choice is between good and evil, and that is, the very, and that is a very different matter indeed. Our lives are made up of a thousand everyday choices. Over the years, these little choices will be bundled together and show clearly what we value. So how do, how do we show our Lord what we value? It's, well, what are we putting first? What, do we, what is the priority in our life? And at the end of our life, all of those little choices will, will be big choices. You know, uh, I think of pointillism, uh, art, right? You, little dots, little dots, little dots, and 
at first it doesn't look like anything, but over time as the artist goes, it becomes a beautiful, a beautiful painting. And those little decisions that we make in our life are those little dots. And they seem little, and they're little at the time, and every time we do one, it's little and little and little. But by the end, it accumulates, and it shows the Lord what our focus is and what's important to us. And uh, skipping, actually, to chapter 4 for a moment here. At the end of chapter 4, Jacob tells us why the Jews um, stumbled. It's because they looked beyond the mark and because they... They couldn't see the simple things. They didn't put the simple things first. They wanted to focus on these uh, things that they couldn't understand, he says. Blindness which blindness came by looking beyond the mark. They must needs fall, for God hath taken away the plainness from them and delivered unto them many things which they cannot understand because they desired it. So at the end of our life, what have, what have our desires been? If it's the things that didn't matter well then, and that... Uh, are hard to understand and are not the plain and simple truths of the, do- of the gospel, that's what the Lord's going to give us because we chose it and we have that agency. But if we chose to follow his son and chose the gospel and to put that first and to put other people first, then we will have the reward for that. Okay, so back into the end of chapter two here. Um, just something interesting is uh, verse 21, He said, Jacob says, and the one being as precious in the sight as the other, and all flesh is of the dust, and for the self same end hath he created them, that they should keep his commandments and glorify him forever. Why why were we created? To to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. What's his work and glory? To bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man. So his work and glory is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life, which then brings him more glory. And when he is glorified, we are all glorified because his glory, it's a, it's a circle. His work and glory is to bring about the immortality and eternal life of man. And as in doing so, he's said, Jacob taught us that our purpose is to glorify him forever. So when we receive immortality and eternal life, we are glorified, which brings him more glory. And his work continues to bring us more glory which brings him more glory, and thus is the, the, the work of the Lord is one eternal round. It's the circle of, of glory and happiness and eternal progression for us and for him. So just something uh, pretty neat, I think, that Jacob points out there. So then, uh, end of chapter 2, he starts to move into uh, sexual immorality and the, 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 grosser, the grosser sins, he says. Um, but the word of, the, of God burdens me, for because of your grosser crimes. For behold, thus saith the Lord, this people begin to wax in iniquity, and they understand not the scriptures, for they seek to excuse themselves in committing whoredoms. They, and they use the scriptures even. They, they point to David and Solomon, so they're clearly looking to the past and using the scriptures to say, hey, look, I can have concubines, and I can commit these whoredoms and, and sexual sins. And what they're doing is, in the words of Alma, in chapter 13 of Alma, they're resting the scriptures, W-R-E-S-T, which means to twist. You take the words of scriptures and you twist them. You mingle them with, with the doctrines of men. Look around us today. Look around the political um, uh, environment and look around just our society, our society in general and tell me if you don't see people resting the scriptures. They take some doctrine and they twist it to fit them so that it, it makes them feel nice. Well, no, I can commit this sin or I can... 
I can be homosexual and commit those acts because God loves everyone. Love is love. Why would God reject that? Well, yes, he does love everyone, and no matter what your sin may be, but he does not look on sin with the least degree of allowance. And so there's this partial truth, and that's the way that Satan works, is he takes partial truths and twists them. He takes the scriptures, he takes David and Solomon, and and then says, hey, look, they did it, so you can too. But Jacob clearly teaches, look, plural marriage, not okay in the Lord's eyes, unless he specifically says, in this case, it is okay. Because at the end of the day, whatever the Lord says, that's, that's the final word. And we learned in 2 Nephi uh, 28 and 29, look, the Lord can, and really too in uh, the book of Acts, with uh, Peter being directed to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It wasn't to the Gentiles at first. But the Lord can change what he says, right? He's, he changes what his revelation to us. And at the end of the day, it's what he says is the final word. But as a rule of thumb and a general principle, as Jacob clearly states, plural marriage, no good. Sexual sin, not good. He he can't be any more clear by saying, For I, the Lord, delight in the chastity of women, and whoredoms are an abomination before me. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Other Scott said about sexual purity, Any sexual intimacy outside the bonds of marriage is a sin and and is forbidden by God. Sexual immorality creates a barrier to the influence of the Holy Spirit with all its uplifting, enlightening, and empowering capabilities. It causes powerful physical and emotional stimulation in time that creates an unquenchable appetite that drives the offender to ever more serious sin. It engenders selfishness and can produce aggressive acts such as brutality, abortion, sexual abuse, and violent crimes. Such stimulation can lead to acts of homosexuality, and they are evil and absolutely wrong. I want to actually go back to Mosiah chapter 4, King Benjamin's the last verse in Mosiah 4, that I love this verse in, in thinking about, well, what is the really what is the law of chastity? But as much I can tell you that if you do not watch yourselves and your thoughts and your words and your deeds and observe the commandments of God and the continuing faithful in the faith of what you have heard concerning the coming of our Lord, even unto the end of your lives, you must perish. And now, O man, remember and perish not. Watch yourselves and your thoughts and your words and your deeds. And it's about purity and in, in thought and intent because that's where uh, our actions originate. I want to jump into chapter 3 here. Um, Jacob then, uh, he starts to move on a bit from these major sins and just talk, starts to talk to them about um, focusing on themselves and that look inward and take care of yourself, you follow the Savior. Uh, because, well, I'll get, I'll get into it in a moment. First, I wanted to read actually verses, verses 1 and 2. Behold, I, Jacob, would speak unto you that are pure in heart. Look unto God with firmness of mind, and pray unto him with exceeding faith, that he will console you in your afflictions, and he will plead your cause, and send down justice upon those who seek your destruction. O all ye that are pure in heart, lift up your heads and receive the pleasing word of God, and feast upon his love. For ye may, if your minds are firm, forever. Again, the, the atonement purifies us. It puts us back on the right path uh, when we sin. But it also breaks and mends the broken heart. Uh, I, there's actually, I mean, there's a talk from Elder Holland, early 2000, broken things to mend, and it's all about the atonement, mending broken things, mending broken hearts. And Jacob says, look, and I, I don't know if, you, if you've watched the, the Book of Mormon video of the, 
is about this chapter here. Jacob sees a man flirting with another woman, basically, and his, and then he sees that man's wife see this happen and sees sees her heart break, basically. And when you think about it that way, Jacob's talking to both groups here. So he says, Be, you, you who are sinning and causing this pain, repent, the atonement's for you. And then he says, to those of you who, whose hearts and uh, have been broken because of this, these sins, the atonement is also for you. Look to the Lord with firmness in mind. Pray unto him, and he will console you. What a great promise that is, that in our darkest times and in our darkest hours, whether they're caused by us or they're caused by others or they're just, a, just because of mortality, the atonement of Jesus Christ is there to console us. Um, most, the bulk of chapter 3 is actually Jacob saying, look at the, the Lamanites. You say that they're so bad, you're worse. Their wickedness is because of their fathers. Uh, he says, remember that their filthiness came because of their fathers. Your filthiness is because you're choosing this. You are breaking your kids' hearts. Uh, because of your bad examples before them. This is on you. And don't look at the Lamanites and say they're so bad. And you've got to think about where they are. This is only, again, like a generation, half generation maybe, uh, removed. Uh, half, yeah, I mean, not very many years is my point. Removed from La- Laman and Lemuel's and the Lamanites splitting from the Nephites. And there, there had already been wars, Nephi tells us. And so... Like, they hate, I mean, they, they dislike the Lamanites. They, these guys who are trying to kill them. And he's saying to them, those guys are better than you. So now, if there's any group, I, th- I think that maybe, maybe that's just, just me. There are specific groups of people that I tend to have those thoughts towards that I have to catch myself and say, look, they may have their own things, but I need to focus on me. And again, King Benjamin, Mosiah 4, but this much I can tell you that if ye do not watch yourselves and your thoughts and your words and your deeds, it, what can we do? What lack I yet? The, the young prince comes to Christ and says, look, I've done all these things. And Christ says, have you done this? Have you done this? Yeah, I've done all those things from, from, from the beginning of my life. What lack I yet? And then Christ tells him something very specific for him. And I can tell you that the Lord will do that for you because he's done it for me, that when I come to him in sincerity of heart and say, what lack I yet? He, he will point out those, those things and he'll point out our weaknesses. Um, and then if we say, okay, that's my weakness, help me, Father. The atonement of Jesus Christ will make that weakness a strength and will, he will make that become strong. And it may take years and years and it may not become a real strength until the eternities. Um, but it, the, the gospel path, the covenant path, is, is about, it's about being on that path. It's not about getting to the... There's, there's not an end in this life. And honestly, there's not an end in eternity. It's, it's eternal progression, but it's about being on that covenant path. Um, I, I guess I hadn't really thought about sharing this until just now, but I went to the temple this week with uh, some friends and my wife, and Something that stood out to me uh, that I feel comfortable sharing even outside the temple is just that the covenants that we make in the temple and the covenants that we make at baptism, right? And we go and we do them for ourselves and we undertake them for ourselves and then we go and we uh, perform, perform them uh, in proxy for the dead. And the words are 
other than a flight, some slight variation to make it clear that it's for someone else, the words are the same. The covenants are the same. And I thought, man, the thought came to me and struck me that obviously those covenants, it's not, a, it's not about what we're doing in life. It is for us who have made those covenants and getting on that covenant path. But clearly it's, it's about eternity, that there is going to always be this effort and striving to keep our covenants and to grow. Um, and that as we continually rely on the atonement of Jesus Christ and we, are, we remain faithful on that covenant path, our weaknesses will become stronger and in time become strengths and become perfected because of him and in him. A few more quick notes uh, to end chapter 3. Uh, verse 11, he, Jacob mentions a second death. This is the second spiritual death. So uh, you can read a lot, a lot about this in uh, Alma 12, Alma 39 through 42, as he talks to his son Corianton. Uh, section 76 of the Doctrine of Covenants. Essentially, there are a few deaths here. The first death is a spiritual death that we all experienced when we came to earth and were separated from the presence of God. Uh, the next death that we all experience is uh, physical death, our spirit leaving our body. Those two deaths are freely overcome by the atonement of Jesus Christ to all men, no matter what. Because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, all men will be brought back to face their maker and be brought back into his presence, and thus overcoming spiritual death. Because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, all men, and I say men, I mean mankind, will be resurrected and their bodies and spirits will be reunited, never to be separated again. So the injustice of, if there be any, in the fall of Adam and Eve is freely overcome by the atonement of Jesus Christ. Where it falls on us is the second spiritual death, which is the second death that Jacob speaks of, is whether or not we get to stay in the presence of, of God and Christ. And at the end of the day, it's, our, it's going to be our choice. If we are comfortable in his presence because we have made those small choices throughout our life those, and we've put him first throughout our life, um, then when we stand in his presence and we look up at him and having his image engraven upon our countenance, then we'll get to stay. And we will stay in his presence and not experience a second spiritual death. Um, but that is up to us. And that's where that's where it behooves, uh, behooves us to follow Jesus Christ and, and the doctrine of Christ and come unto him. Moving on to chapter 4. Uh, something I already touched on, so just briefly. Uh, Jacob mentions the difficulty of engraving, quote, our words upon the plates. And we know that the things we write upon the plates must remain. Now in this thing we do rejoice, and we labor diligently to engrave these words upon the upon plates, hoping that our beloved brethren and our children will receive them with thankful hearts and look upon them that they may learn with joy and not with sorrow, neither with contempt concerning their first parents. For this intent have we written these things, that they may know that we knew of Christ and we had a hope of his glory many hundreds of years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of this glory, his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. And it's a, great, it's a great purpose of the scriptures is to teach us that it's Christ and, and knowing about the Savior and about God is not new to us and that our fathers knew and 
And that's obviously one of the purposes of the Book of Mormon as well, is just to bring uh, a knowledge about the fathers, right? And the covenants that have been made with them and that they, that they knew them. Um, and I, man, I just get from these few verses in the first part of chapter 4, Jacob's love again, and you know that he talked about his anxiety before, but the reason he's doing this is in, in hope that they would accept it with gladness and with, with joy and know that they, they their parents, knew of, of Christ. And uh, it reminds me of 2 Nephi 25, um, Nephi saying, you know, why do we talk of Christ? Well, we talk of Christ so that our, our kids will know, our children may know to whom they can turn. And uh, at the very least, Jacob's saying, I want them to know that we had a hope of his glory many hundreds of years before his coming. And that, remind, that reminds me of uh, Alma 56 and the stripping warriors uh, saying that we do not doubt that our mothers knew it. And the importance of, of parents, uh, that we, the responsibility that we have to let our kids know that we know that we know Christ and that we um, have, have faith in him and in his plan and in the gospel. Uh, and when you compare that to what Jacob... So I guess another point, side backtrack for a moment here. Chapter 3 ends his sermon to his people, correcting them. Uh, and chapter 4 starts kind of this, uh, where he's talking more about why he's writing. And he's saying, look, uh, the... The, the children of Israel are going to be... The, the, the Jews rejected Christ. I don't want my people to reject Christ. I want them to know that we know about him. And um, and then it kind of leads into chapter 5, which is the allegory of the olive tree. That any, and I'll, I'll touch on that in a moment. But So chapter 4 is kind of this in-between chapter, between his sermon and then the uh, allegory of the olive tree. And... Uh, so he, Jacob here is just saying, look, I want my kids to know, I want my people to know that we knew of Christ. And in verse 5, he even says that we worshipped the Father in the name, uh, that they believed in Christ and worshipped the Father in his name. And so even from verses like this, we learn things like, hey, Old Testament times, which is the time this is, and, and the law of Moses they knew about Christ clearly. They knew that Christ and uh, Heavenly Father, the Father and the Son, were separate. And uh, but he, when you, when, so I go back. To, so I kind of took this backtrack. Go back to where I was talking about parents and our responsibility to teach our kids. And uh, if it's this really cool juxtaposition, kind of that um, Jacob gives us, because. He's talking, hey, this is what I'm doing, why I'm doing it for my people, that they will know this. But then earlier he was talking to his people and he was talking to them about their bad examples. And so you, well, the difference between a good example and a bad example and the power that parents have. Uh, Elder Holland, uh, kind of lengthy story, but I wanted to read it. He said, I think some parents may not understand that even when they, feel, when they feel secure in their own minds regarding matters of personal testimony, they can nevertheless make that faith too difficult for their children to detect. We can reasonably be active, meeting going Latter-day Saints, but if we do not live the lives of gospel integrity and convey to our children powerful, heartfelt convictions regarding the truthfulness of the restoration and the divine guidance of the church from the first vision to the very, this very hour, then those children may, not, may, to our regret, but not surprise, turn out not to be visibly active, meeting going 
Latter-day Saints, or sometimes anything close to it. Not long ago, Sister Holland and I met a fine young man who came into contact with us after he had been roaming around through the occult and sorting through a variety of Eastern religions, all in an attempt to find religious faith. His father, he admitted, believed in nothing whatsoever. His, his uh, grandfather, he said, was actually a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but he didn't do much with it, the young man said. He was always pretty cynical about the church. From a grandfather who was cynical, to a son who was agnostic, to a grandson who is now looking desperately for what God had already once given his family. To lead a child or anyone else, even inadvertently, away from faithfulness, away from loyalty and bedrock belief, simply because we want to be clever or independent is license no parent nor any person has ever been given. Live the gospel as conspicuously as you can. Keep the covenants of your children. Know you have... uh, Know you have uh, keep the covenants your children know you have made. Give priesthood blessings and bear your testimony. Don't just assume your children will somehow get the drift of your beliefs on their own. I love him saying, uh, "Live the gospel as conspicuously as you can. Intentional discipleship and letting your kids know." And it's what Nephi was said. It's why why is he talking of Christ so that they, his kids would know where to look. And Jacob saying, why am I writing, even though it's really hard, so that my kids will know that I knew. And so you could com- you know, co- compare that back to, you know, the, the bad examples of the, of the, that Jacob was seeing in his people. And what he was seeing is people not conspicuously living the gospel. And uh, that he saw the ramifications that that, could, that that can turn into in one generation, two generations, three generations, and as Elder Holland said, then what you have is people searching for the truth in a family tree that had already been given the truth. And so it just is important for us to um, live the truth and testify of the truth to our children so that they will not doubt that, that we know it. All right, just a few uh, quick things I wanted to mention as a wrap-up. Jacob chapter 4, he, he teaches us in verse 10 to seek not to counsel the Lord. And uh, President Miriam G. Romney said, Now I do not think that many members of the church consciously urge the persuasions of men or their own counsel instead of heeding the Lord's. However, when we do not keep ourselves advised as to what the counsel of the Lord is, we are prone to substitute our own counsel for it. As a matter of fact, there is nothing else we can do but follow our own counsel when we do not know the Lord's instructions. How do we know the Lord's instructions? Stay close to the prophet and the apostles. Stay close to them and their counsel, and the Lord will not allow them to lead us astray. If we want to hear his voice and know his counsel for us in our day, listen to them. And then get on our knees and pray to know that it's for us, and the Lord will then direct us specifically. But we have to first know what the Lord is saying. Uh, Otherwise, we will be seeking to counsel him and not taking his counsel. And that's exactly what Jacob talks about uh, that the Jews were doing is they were counseling, seeking to counsel the Lord and they were looking beyond the mark. He says, uh, the Jews were stiff-necked people and they despised the words of plainness and killed the prophets and sought the things that they could not understand. So in our lives, are we despising plain things and putting uh, you know, the mysteries of God first and that's what we're seeking or is it the plain, simple, pure doctrine of Christ and what the prophets are teaching us. What is the prophet of the day saying? Uh, we don't need to wonder about 
and, and, and think, well, what, is, this, is this social media influencer right? Or is that social media influencer right? Or is this report right? Was, what is about this newspaper or this magazine saying? No, look, look to, the, to the prophet. He sees the light. Focus on the pure, plain, simple things. Because what happened to the Jews is they looked beyond the mark and became blind. And then God took away the plainness. He says, God has taken away his plainness from them and delivered unto them many things which they cannot understand because they desired it. And right before this, Jacob kind of gives us again this antidote. How, how do we stay away from that? Well, it's having the Spirit, being, uh, being worthy of the Spirit, keeping the Spirit with us. Behold, my beloved brethren, he that prophesieth, let him prophesy to the understanding of men. For the Spirit speaketh the truth and lieth not. Wherefore, it speaketh the things as they really are, and of things as they really will be. Wherefore, these things are manifest unto us plainly for the, salvations of our, for the salvation of our souls. Similar scripture in Doctrine and Covenants section 93, that uh, truth is a knowledge of things as they really were, and as they really are, and as they will be, essentially. And that comes from the Spirit. And so if we want to know that truth, and if we want to stay close to that truth, and to the simple, plain, simple things of the gospel, stay close to the Spirit. So Jacob then, in his teaching us that the Jews rejected and they're, they're gonna, they fall away and they have fallen away, really. That's why they're in the promised land is because the Jews had rejected Christ. Um, he starts to then move into this uh, prelude of Zenus' allegory of the olive tree. And he says, well, how could they um, build upon the stone that they've rejected? He says, but behold, according to the scriptures, this stone shall become the great and last uh, and the only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. And now, my beloved brethren, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can never build upon it, that it may become the head of their corner? And so he says, okay, so how, if they rejected it, then how can they then come back? And so what we get here is the allegory of the olive tree, which really is right in harmony with what Isaiah teaches about the scattering and gathering of Israel, uh, that Nephi and Jacob both quoted Isaiah's words about. And uh, this, the scripture says, Behold, according to the scriptures, this stone, Christ, shall become the great and last and the only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. And there's a couple of uh, scriptures that, that teach that. Um, one is section 118, or section, chapter 118 of Psalms says, The stone which the builders refused is become the head stone of the corner. And uh, Isaiah Chapter 28, verse 16 says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And so these scriptures are some of the scriptures that Jacob's referring to and saying, Hey, look, they reject it, but it's going to become the head again. So how is that possible? Well, I'm going to teach you. And that's what the allegory of the olive tree is going to teach us, is how the Jews can then be restored. Uh, and then verse 18, I wanted to just close with, uh, Jacob saying, Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you if I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness, firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over-anxiety for you. And so he's like, I'm going to try to explain it to you, but hopefully I don't just get like too anxious and can't do it. And uh, I just, it's like, you kind of want to say, it's all right, Jacob, I, I get it. Take a few deep breaths. You got it. Inhale, exhale, calm down. Um, but it's just this love and and desire for the welfare of his people that he has that he just you know feels this this anxiety inside uh, thanks for listening everyone i really appreciate uh, the time that you take to listen and i hope that uh, you get something out of this that you can
take to your scripture study and your gospel study to learn and to grow. Uh, shout out to my wife also for letting me come here and do this every week. Uh, it's a great sacrifice for her. So thanks, Tej. Love you. And uh, we'll chat next week, everyone. All right, so I know I already ended the podcast, like literally said talk next week. I'm not even going to edit that out. I'm just slapping this on at the end um, because I have actually had some issues getting the podcast uploaded uh, when I normally get it uploaded. And and then in between when I normally upload it and now I had this thought that just kept coming back to me and uh, I realized maybe I needed to share it and before I upload the, the final podcast. Uh, the thought is this. So... Uh, earlier talked about uh, Jacob in chapter four, talking about why he wrote, and it, he wrote it for his posterity. And he wrote that they may, as he said, that they may know that we knew of Christ and we had a hope of his glory many hundreds of years before his coming. Um, and I started the thought that came to me was, well, how'd that work? How did that turn out for him? For him personally. What, what do we know about his kids? Well, Enos was his child. It was his son. And before I read what Enos said, I want to read something else that Jacob wrote. And it's a, a verse that I've, I read earlier in the in this episode. 2 Nephi 9, verse 18. Uh, he says, But behold, the righteous, the saints of the Holy One of Israel, they who have believed in the Holy One of Israel, they who, who have endured the crosses of the world, and despise the shame of it, they shall inherit the kingdom of God, which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world, and their joy shall be forever. So he talks about it, says, he said, I'm going to skip, He's there's a lot of commas, this is a big run, long run-on sentence type of thing going on here. Uh, maybe not run-on technically, but there's a, just it's a long compound sentence. So I'm going to shorten it. But behold, the saints... Uh, their joy shall be full forever. So he says, the saints, their joy shall be full forever. Now let's jump into Enos. Enos is saying, uh, he talks about his dad. First of all, the first thing he talks about is his dad. He talks about Jacob. And he says, I, Enos, knowing that my father, he was a just man. How did he know? Because he, as Elder Holland said, conspicuously lived the gospel. And he, as Enos says, taught him in his language and also the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So he taught his son. And then what is he, what, when he's thinking about um, praying and the things that are going on inside of his head, what are the words he uses? He says, but behold, I went to hunt beasts in the forest and the words which I had often heard my father speak concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints sunk deep into my heart. So we have this one verse, 2 Nephi 9, 18, that has those exact words about eternal life and the joy of the saints. But it sounds like uh, that's something that Jacob often talked about. And the words which I had often heard my father speak concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints sunk deep into my heart. We need to be sure that we are like Jacob and sharing our testimonies with others, with other people outside the church and in missionary, in, in missionary efforts quote unquote, but it's more especially, I think, and in particular with our, with our family, with our kids, because they will hear those things and they will remember those things. And even if they're unsure of the truthfulness of the gospel and unsure of the truthfulness of our testimony, when they comes in there in the forest, in the wilderness of their life, and they start to ponder on, on things, seeking for the truth, what they're going to remember 
is the words which we often uh, spoke to them. I'll talk more about this, I'm sure, next week when we get into Enos. But, uh, I guess that's in two weeks. But something that I just kept thinking about as I was talking so much in this episode about Jacob and, and what he was sharing and why he wrote. And I uh, thought it was important to just note that he had a direct impact on his son, Enos.